while we go to school so we can earn more of it. And then we work all of our life, maybe 40 to 60 hours a week or more, actually earning and acquiring it. And then what we do is we invest countless hours in thoughts discussing and deciding on how to handle it. Then we stroll the shopping malls and the Internet domains, deciding how we're going to spend it. And then we get caught up, more often than we not, worrying about how we can maybe have more of it. And then we dream and we scheme and figure out how we can do it. Arguments over it have added to the leading cause of a lot of marital demise and business partner breakups and even government shutdowns. And the loss of it, well, sadly, it's led to many suicides. You see, the obsession with it has led to many of society's crimes and the absence of it has led to many of society's nightmares. Some call it the root of all evil and some call it a means to great good. But one thing we can probably all agree on here this morning is that we cannot afford to ignore the pressing realities and the great importance of money. And the Bible doesn't either. In fact, the Bible takes on this subject of money head on, eyes up, no hold barred. In fact, the Bible claims to be one of the leading guides, if not the foremost guide on money management that there is. There's some 2,000 passages in the scriptures in this book right here that address the use of money. And Jesus, Jesus, when he spoke, two thirds of the parables, those are the stories that Jesus used to uh, talk about life and wisdom. Two thirds of them gave some reference to money. In fact, if Jesus was to walk in here today, guess what? There's a 66% chance that he'd talk about money. But I know that the subject matter is a tricky one for a pastor in a church. Because the subject matter of money is often thought of, well, they always sort of go there eventually. You just hang around them long enough and they will. Carrie's been here a year. It figures. <laughs> Two-thirds of the time, I should have been speaking on it a lot more. In fact, it was back in the spring that I thought, you know, we need to address this subject matter not because, oh, we money and that's what churches need. Because this subject matter of money gets to the heart of our discipleship if we want to be a follower of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ and you're sort of on the outside looking in, just sort of showed up at church this morning, then I tell you what, why you should listen to what the Bible says about money is because if you want to follow God, He's going to be addressing this subject. And I'd want to end on knowing what it's about from His perspective. 
And so, over these weeks, this month, we're going to step in to a discussion about money. And I trust that you'll just come with an open heart and a sincere life before God to have him speak into your life. And you can decide at the end of these weeks um, whether the wisdom of God that comes from this book is compelling enough for you to follow or not. You see, it's not my word. It's the scripture's word. And it's God's word on a subject that is front and center in so many if not all of our lives, every day. I am mindful this morning that many of our wrists are rubbed raw with the chain of indebtedness. In fact, we ourselves are weary. We're tired and frustrated with trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And um, We probably come to a place to think that maybe some of us in here that will never get ahead financially. But we would give whatever we could if we could be freed up from the pressure and the weight of the financial matter and the money issues in our life. I believe that's true for all of us. I know it's true for my wife and I. It's a common journey to all people. And so I'm very grateful that the scripture gives reference and it looks at it. You need to know this. God wants you to be freed up as well. And sometimes we hear, I think, incorrect teaching from scripture concerning God's perspective on how he wants us to be freed up from it. But I trust as we walk through these weeks that you'll begin to truly wrestle with what the spirit of God is saying to you from the word. And then follow in steps of obedience so that we can make our way to the life that God does intend for us because he desires for us to be freed up from this indebtedness, worry in this financial matter and move on to things of greater significance and importance like like people and family and relationships and uh, church and and the kingdom's impact around the world. So. I've given a title to the series. I I waited until last night, and I finally decided on one. I'll decide tomorrow if I like what I gave it today. (laughs) The series is entitled Money Madness and Mission. Money Madness and Mission. And I want to lead off with a quote from A.W. Tozer. Uh, If you were to look into my files of messages I've given over 30 years of ministry life, uh, a lot of those files are back still in the Midwest, but uh, we're going to get them here. Uh, the largest stack would be in this area. And um, Tozer is one of those who helped right-size some things for me, as well as some other pastors through the years. One in particular is Sunder Christian Lions pastor from uh, Canada. And uh, some of his thoughts have come through even in this series. But Tozer says this, The whole subject of the believer and his money is so involved and so intimate that one hesitates to even approach a consideration of it. Yet it is of such great importance that one who wishes to qualify as a servant of Christ dare not avoid it, lest they be found wanting in the day of reckoning. Wanting in the day of reckoning. What does that mean? That means there is an accountability, actually, for how we walk through this life, stewarding the resources of God. 
Because up front, one of the main things that we need to understand is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It is all His. So ultimately, if you lose something, you say, oh, good. I guess you wanted to back God, right? Now you say, that's frivolous kind of thinking, but you have to shift your mind away from acquisition thinking to understanding that God is the owner of everything. And if you have chance to use it, you are merely a steward of it. And many times we're not even renting or leasing it. It's been gifted to us by his hand. So we steward what he owns and there is a day of reckoning. And so part of the challenge, if you will, for us to be able to bring this to the forefront and discuss for a few weeks is the reality that there's coming a day. And I need to let you know that. I remember my dad always telling me growing up, he says, Carrie, <laughs> something's lacking in churches these days. And it's a warning message. Now, my dad wasn't some hellfire and brimstone kind of person, but I tell you what got to him as a young man growing up outside of the church. He never went to church, understood really what the church was until he was 17, 18 years old. God changed and transformed his life. But he always had a sense that there was a need for a warning message. And so... I don't come with a heavy hand because I come with the Scripture's hand, and if it's heavy, so be it. But I agree with Tozer in this. There is a day of reckoning that comes related to how we steward the things that God owns and gives us in our lives. Now, as we walk through this idea of being freed up financially and being able to serve and love God and honor Him in the midst of money madness and be on mission... Um, there's a lot of directions I could go. In fact, you uh, can imagine some 2,000 passages, two-thirds of the parables. We would be here a long time. I want you to know where I'm specifically heading with this series, Money, Madness, and Mission. We could put it in these kind of categories. Uh, in fact, I've come across these in different works I've read over the years. Uh, we could spend time talking about how to depend on and trust in God how to work industriously, how to handle money responsibly, how to save mightily, and how to invest wisely. And those all sound really good. In fact, we will be giving glance to some of those as we journey through these weeks. But the sixth one is this, how to give generously. And it almost seems strange, but... If you flip that list and you start with the give generously thing, things start to rattle around and line up right in some ways when it comes to wisdom from the scriptures that it would take a long time to do otherwise. And so in this series, Money, Madness and Mission, we're going to talk about giving and we're going to talk about why give today. And next week, we're going to pick up the. Um, the how to give, all right? And then we're going uh, to go on and, and move into even to whom to give, all right? There's, there's going to be these subject matters that we take on, but it's going to be directly related to give generously. And you're thinking, well, I, you're doing a, a talk on money, madness, and management, and all this. Yeah, I am, but I only have a few weeks and a few moments, and it's already warm enough today in here for us to say, yeah, let's get on with it, all right? So we're going to get on with it. Will you pray with me? Lord, a protection over us as a body. Lord, whether we've been here for a long time or new, may you awaken us as the awakening church to your desire from Scripture as it relates to our finances. Lord, I know 
that there are pressures, there are anxious people in this very room right now because of the life they're living and what's going on or not going on in the financial world. Lord, may you teach us through your word in these weeks what your heart is. And Lord, may your word open us up to your desire. May we not listen to the clamorings of the world or even the fears of our own soul or even to the voice of a pastor necessarily. Lord, may we listen to your word, to our hearts, to our family, to our particular need as we have it in our own life. And Lord, we just trust you that you will break us free from the bondage that often entrails us in this area. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, God commands us to give. God commands us to give not because he is a tyrant, but he wants to set us free from a tyrant. And so today we're talking about the death of a tyrant. And I don't know if you look at it this way, but it can be true. It can be true. Money materialism can become a tyrant in our life. And and we're used to the subject matter of terrorists and the terrible things that terrorists do. You know, the beheadings and others. Oh, my goodness, how terrible is that? But how is it that the adversary works in this culture in this way? He's not sending little terrorists around, right, that, that are doing some of those despicable kinds of works necessarily. But he has a tyrant in this Western culture that pushes us into materialism and consumerism that we're like a fish in a fishbowl. We can't, you know, figure it out. It's like, oh, wow, I live in this world. We do. We do. I, I was thinking uh, this morning, actually, that there, um, uh, that kids movie, uh, there's a few of them, Monsters, Inc., you know, and the monster comes out and monsters ink to scare the little kids because the louder the scream, the more energy that's stored up in some vial somewhere for power for the city or something. Well, sometimes I think, you know, that's the kind of tyrant that money is in my life. Even was the last few weeks. How about you? And it comes and it goes, ah, ah, loser. You've really messed up before. I tell you this, everybody in this room has messed up financially. All right? Turn to the person next to you, find their story out. All right? (laughs) Dumb decisions all over the place. But I tell you what happens with the monster and some of the fear we have financially. You know, there's two main things that are just, they're devastating not only in your personal life, they're just embarrassing, they're humiliating. One is to fall sexually, to sexual immorality, and the other is to fall in the area of finances, whether it's an issue of bankruptcy or just a stupid decision, whatever it may be. But this tyrant moves its way around, whether it's through dumb spending or maybe overwhelming expenses you know that are ahead of you, and it goes, ah! How are we going to kill that tyrant? We're going to kill that tyrant by doing exactly what that number six is there. Learning how to have a spirit of generosity and give. Mark 10 says this. This is Jesus. If he walked in here today, he could typically have this conversation with us. Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Hmm. Jesus looks at him and he says, well, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Um, Teacher, he declared, uh, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Yeah, right. (laughs) Jesus looked at him, though, and didn't go, yeah, right. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This subject matter, where you're at in your life, what's going on or not going on, Jesus looks at you not as the tyrant. He's not the tyrant. He's wanting to lead you to be freed from a tyrant. And he looks at you and he loves you. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Do not commit adultery, all those things he'd said before, but then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Compassion, but he knew where his loyalties were tied. His loyalties were tied to his wealth. And so he walked away with a down, broken heart. Now, when we always look at this parable, if you've heard it before, guess where our mind goes? Yeah, rich people. It's really hard for them. It's really hard for them. Have any of you ever gone to this site? Globalrichlist.com. If you go to globalrichlist.com and you put your salary in there, it'll tell you where you rank at in the world. If you make 18000 a year, you're in the top 5% of the richest people in the world by income. If you make 32000 you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world by income. And if you make 42000 which is the average salary, I think, uh, in the United States, you are in the top one-half a percent of the richest people in the world. That makes you the 29th, 20, the 29,805th richest person on earth by income. In other words, all of us in this room are rich, but we're not believing that. Why? Because, well, we're in California. I'm learning that one. You're right. Thanks for that word. That's my wake-up call. That's my tyrant. The bear. (laughs) We are bombarded with the reality that, or, or the insinuation that we don't have enough yet. And so we order our life and our perspective on riches according to what we have around us. If you make 42,000 in income a year, somewhere around 21, 22 dollars an hour, the average laborer in Ghana makes just eight cents in the same amount of time. If you earn 42000 in one year, it would take the average laborer in Guyana 262 years to earn the same amount. Thirsty? It will only take you two minutes to earn enough for a refreshing can of cola. In Zimbabwe, if you want one, it'll take an hour. Your monthly income could pay the monthly salaries 
of 188 doctors in Pakistan. Right-size it. Give us perspective. Here's another quote from A.W. Tozer. I like it. There is within the heart, human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and pierced passion. The pronouns me and my look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old uh, Adam, Adamic nature better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The, the roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. And he refers to this as the tyranny of things in his classic book, The Pursuit of God. The tyranny of things. So there we are. There we are. There's that tyrant type of word again coming at us, haunting us. But is it there more intensely than it should be because we have given place to it by pursuing things? You know, in Romans 1, it says, of lost people, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And Jesus Himself taught what? That you needed to take up your cross and follow Him because whoever wants to save His life will lose it, but whoever loses His life for Him will find it. There are teachings all over the place in the scriptures that cause us to right-size things because we can get focused on things rather than people. Now, this week we had the um, tragic death of another comedian in our culture. Joan Rivers, at the age of 88, went in for a throat surgery uh, or an inspection in New York City. And uh, she went into cardiac arrest, and she died. And uh, this um, brass, politically incorrect, some oftentimes crass kind of comedian was gone from this earth. In fact, she joked seemingly, from what I understand, even the night before when she did some stand-up comedy routine, that um, uh, she could die at any time. And then she ended up doing that. Died. And very sad, very heartbreaking. You see your daughter and grandchild and those kinds of things and, and the unexpectedness of that. And, and uh, many of us are familiar with what that unexpected death of a loved one is like. But whenever that happens in our culture, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, maybe not, I don't know. But I immediately think, wow, one second on the other side of eternity would redefine everything about this life. Wouldn't it? It would redefine the aspect of, I didn't bring it with me. It's God's. It would also define the reality that God exists and that he is looking into our lives to be able to use our lives. But we spend so much 
of our focus and our time trying to acquire and attain the next level. In fact, I found it true in my life, even moving here, we did where, you know, you spend all these years sort of acquiring Christmas gifts, helping with the kids, this and that, and then you have to pack up. (laughs) And then you say to yourself, why do we have all this stuff? We don't need all this stuff. That's why we're able to live here very happily, and I still have one-third of my house still packed away back in Indiana. I'd like to have my office stuff here, and I'd like to have my lazy boy, but other than that... One second on the other side of eternity would define a lot. And so when it comes us understanding the perspective of things, we need to realize that in this parable, we are the rich person and the acquisition of all of our wealth. There's nothing that we shouldn't be willing to give up to be able to follow God and be obedient to him. Again, it's the perspective and the right sizing of things. May we not give in to exchanging the glory of God for all other kinds of images and things that are going on. May we not seek to save our life and in so doing, lose it. Now, there's certain aspects of the tyranny, the materialism that I just want to give reference to. The first is the tyrant. He promises, but he never delivers the good. He promises, but he never delivers the goods. Ecclesiastics 5.10 says this, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? You know, it's, it's funny how this starts out so early in our life. I, I remember um, really on, early on when our first child, Ryan, was born. And, um, you know, hey, three years later, he got a sibling. The sibling came along and, and we thought, you know, hey, Ryan, how would you like to give some of your stuffed animals to your little brother? I mean, he had a lot of stuffed animals, right? Some he hadn't seen for a long time. Well, so he picks down a couple and he says, these. And then we're like, well, how about that one and that one and that one? No, those are mine, right? It's that sinful nature from the get-go. And Ryan, if you're listening to this online, I'm not accusing you of being, you know, not charitable to your brother, all right? But it's indicative of how we think that these belongings, these things are going to deliver the goods when they never end up doing so. I remember one of the first cars, you're going to probably laugh, it dates me, some of you are dated the same. One of the first cars I thought would be really cool to have uh, was the Dukes of Hazard car, right? The Dukes of Hazard car, and what was that car? Some of you know what it is. A Plymouth Duster, wasn't it? See, you've got the same problem I have. No, I like that. That's a kind of That was fun. I wouldn't want that car now for anything, right? Maybe you would. Maybe take it back. But our eyes are always peeled to the next shinier, the better thing, Right? But then we get it and it never delivers the goods. You know, there's a story of a large manufacturing company in South America. And uh, they moved there and they set up shop and they started making all kinds of widgets and things. And, and uh, they had their workers come. And after, what, a couple of weeks or whatever, they gave, gave them their first paycheck. And the workers never came back. Because that paycheck was enough for them to live on for the whole year. <laughs> See what they did? They gave all of them a catalog 
for the things that they produce. And then everybody thought, oh, I want that. I need that. And so that's how they retain their workers. Isn't that like nuts? There is a study that was done in 1860. The number of essential things that we felt we needed for life in 1860, guess how many there were? 16. Today, over 100. A smartphone? I have to have a smartphone. I couldn't get by without the smartphone. Internet access, yes. And we just start putting a list together. But it's a, a tricky culture. Christopher Lash, who wrote a famous uh, bestseller called The Culture of Narcissism, says this. In a simpler time, advertising merely called attention to the product and exalted its advantages. Now it manufactures a product of its own. The consumer perpetually unsatisfied, restless, anxious, and bored. Advertising serves not so much to advertise products as to promote consumption as a way of life. It educates the masses into an unpeasable appetite not only for goods, but for the experiences and personal fulfillment. It holds consumption as the answer to the age-old discontents of loneliness, sickness, weariness, and lack of sexual satisfaction. He promises but never delivers the goods. And the second here is he breeds discontent. He breeds discontent. Experienced it yesterday, walking around Ikea with my family. Ikea is a hard store to get out of, is it not? Yeah. If you go there, yeah. I'm glad it's an hour and a half away from me. <laughs> but my little daughter comes up to me, and she shows me something. I forget what she was saying. And she says to me, Daddy, Daddy, I need this. <laughs> I'm knowing what I'm speaking on today, right? Wouldn't you hate to live with a pastor? And I said, Gracie, you don't need that. You want that. Now, if you want that, that's fine. We can talk about it. But we need to decide between want and need. And it is a continual teaching process over and over again. The third thing is this tyrant breeds anxiety. It breeds anxiety. Even for most of us who have money to satisfy the consumption desire, it leads to this. Somehow, one way or another, we get into this anxiousness with it. Jack Hayford, in a book that he's written, has a chapter called The Spirit of Poverty. And he says that most people think poverty is not having enough. We need to go further and realize that the spirit of poverty is not only not having enough, but the fear of not having enough. We realize that under this definition, it is possible for the rich people to be poor in spirit. Rich people can be just as poverty-stricken as literally poor people can. The fear of not having Enough. There's a story told of a gentleman, a, bit, a, a guy that every, every September and October, he got stomach ulcers. And they did all kinds of tests, and they couldn't figure out why he got the stomach ulcers. And still they started talking to him deeper and found out about his life. That every September and October, he starts thinking that Christmas is coming, and he worries about having to spend money. Any of you got stomach ulcers about Christmas coming right now? It breeds anxiety. And number four, it destroys relationships. It destroys relationships. You know, I, um, Josh and Greg are in here somewhere, and Janice and stuff. The whole uh, funeral world that they do ministry in, and they take care of families as they're grieving. 
I remember I haven't specifically talked uh, with Greg and Josh about this as much as I have some other funeral directors in my past history, but they'll talk about how challenging the funeral services are because of all the fighting that's going on within the family. And where's a lot of the fighting coming from? Money. People will destroy family relationships for the rest of their life because of money issues. I don't know about you, but you put those four together. He promises but never delivers the good. He breeds discontent. He breeds anxiety and he destroys relationships. I don't know what you would call that, but I would call that a tyrant, a tyrant. Matthew 6:24 says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. King James Version says the word mammon. All right? Mammon is capitalized as is money here because it's a living entity that preys upon our life. But I want us to look at God's command to give. And this is sort of a twofold statement to you as it relates to putting to death this tyrant. The statement is this. Generous giving awakens us to the materialistic tyrant in our life and breaks the stranglehold by turning our focus towards eternal realities. Paul in Romans 7 says that before the law came, he thought he was doing great. He then said that the law came and sin woke up within him and he died. Which commandment of the law did it for him? Thou shalt not covet. That of all the commandments awoke in me the fact that there is tyranny in my life. Romans 7, 7 says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if I had not said, if, the, if it had not said, the law had not said, do not covet. Whether it's the rich young ruler or the Apostle Paul dealing with it, when we are taught the subject of generous giving, it awakens us to the tyrant because we become protective. There's a good chance that if you knew I was speaking on money today and the subject of giving, you might not have come. It breeds anxiety in you right now as you're seated there. What's he going to say? Today we talk about why give. Next week, how to give. The next week, how much to give and then to whom to give. All that I don't like to deal with. Why? Because it's awakening us to the reality that there is a pressing tyrant in our life. That's a good thing. Do not be anxious about that or coming here on a Sunday this month. Because we need to be clear that it exists. And then allow this temptation or allow this challenge in life, the pursuit of it, to mold us into Christ's likeness. Jesus did not walk around with rags on. He had a seamless gown, which was an expensive robe and gown. All right? So it's not that wealth is wrong, but it's the love of money. Scripture teaches that's at the root of all kinds of evil. 
Money is not evil, but the pursuit of it, being overwhelmed by it, leads us to places where we do not want to go. So generous giving awakens us to the materialistic tyrant in our life. And then obedient giving breaks the stranglehold of the tyrant. It breaks the stranglehold of the tyrant. Matthew six nineteen. Do not do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's trying to shift our focus to eternal realities. And as we shift our focus to eternal realities, then the, the tentacles or the claws of the tyrant get unleashed in our life more. It doesn't necessarily mean life gets any easier financially, but somehow the anxiety, the discontent, the broken relationships, all that garbage of the tyrant starts to dissipate when we pursue a spirit of generosity, storing up for ourselves eternal things. I like this statement. You invest treasure in eternal realities and you will get interest in eternal things. If you had a son or a daughter who was in the military in the Middle East right now, do you think you'd be paying closer attention to the Middle East? You bet. If you adopted a daughter from China, do you think your ears pick up whenever you hear about something in China, especially the area you adopted her from? Yes. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be going. And so you want to shift the focus away from the materialistic culture in which we live, redefine it, get perspective, begin to look on eternal realities. And as you shift that focus and put your treasure, your heart in eternal things and the things of God, it frees you up from the tentacles of this tyrant. So I'm going to list three benefits of investing in eternal realities. I'm going to pull them quickly as we close here from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed in the sower to the sower and the bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will encourage the harvest of your righteousness You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, Their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his incredible, indescribable gift. Now, I underlined a few words here. Obedience, confession, generosity, and grace. Here's the reality. If you confess Christ is your Savior, your leader in life, that confession requires obedience. So obedience follows on the heels of the confession. And what is that obedience? That obedience is a spirit of generosity. And how do you have that spirit of generosity available to you in your life? Because of the pure grace of God. Freely you have received. Freely give. One thing to the next to the next. So these are three things I list here. If we invest in eternal realities, we will have material sufficiency. It says that up in verse 8. 
We will have enough for what we need as we give to God. Secondly, we will have spiritual abundance. Enlarge the harvest of your righteousness, the scripture says. You ever think about righteousness, spiritual development as being a harvest, a windfall? And third, we will gain multiplied resources for ministry. We will gain multiplied resources for ministry. And there's two forms of that. One is spiritual and one is material. I close with these two statements from two gentlemen. The first is from a Nigerian Christian. He was sitting in a room with a pastor. He had visited the U.S. He was there visiting the U.S. And he was uh, just really excited to be in the United States. And uh, the pastor said to the man, he said, you know, it surprises me that you seem to have a great appreciation for America. So many people uh, in so many countries, even countries that we help as America, uh, do not have an appreciation. They're very anti-American. And we see that on the news. But he said to this Nigerian, he says, but wasn't it from Nigeria that Americans came and bought or stole or shipped children across the seas to be slaves at one time. You among anybody of any nation, I think, would have reason to have bitterness. And the pastor says, I'll never forget the Nigerian sat there across from him. And he said with... uh, Sternness that penetrated the pastor and his heavy accent uh, from Nigeria. He said this. No matter what else you did. You brought the gospel. And that is all that matters. You see, it was a couple of generations prior that some missionaries from America went And they took the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to his village. And his village became Christians, as did his parents. And he was able to be raised in a Christian home. Friends, when we look to eternal realities, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and not on earth. Those are the kinds of things that we begin to have focus towards. And our generous giving to whomever it may be, as it seeks to be honored by God and his leading can be used by God to change and to transform people's lives, people's lives that matter eternally. The other is by a businessman by the name of Fred Smith, and he had given hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions even, uh, to different ministry organizations and churches throughout his history. And he hit this one particular season of life where he had a big skid financially, and he almost lost everything. And a friend of his was sitting and talking with him and said, Fred, Do you ever feel bad for giving away all those millions of dollars? And Fred simply said this. He said, no way. No, because that is the only money that I did not lose. Everything else I lost. Now you tell me, those two people, is there perspective there for us to glean that would say to us this morning, That there is value, there is value in right-sizing the world in which we live and acknowledge that generous giving awakens us to the materialistic tyrant in our life and breaks the stranglehold by turning our focus towards eternity.
eternal realities. Why give? Yes, because God owns everything. We want to give God the glory. But as it relates to us on a personal level, friends, we are unwise to ignore the scriptural teaching to give generously. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, your heart bleeds for the nations. This morning, Lord, you desire to liberate those who are bound. Some are bound deep in sin, far from you. Lord, some, I can even acknowledge in my own personal life, some of the bondage that comes from the anxiety of finance. And Lord, for us in this room, I know that is true as well. Jesus, may you teach us faithfully from your word. May you look at us and love us like you did that rich young man. And Lord, may we be obedient to the confession of the gospel that we carry. And may we give generously because of the grace that you give us to be obedient. Lord, whether it's giving to a person in need, whether it's, it's giving to support our family in some dimensions you're calling us to step into, Lord, whether it's giving to your kingdom's work, whether locally at a church or through missions work, whatever it may be, God, may you allow us to be people who are identified and marked as individuals who give generously. And Satan and all of your host, you have no rights to create bondage upon us as an individuals, as families, and as a body of people. For our lives are not our own. They've been bought with a price. And we will set our minds and our hearts on eternal things, not the temporal. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you as we journey into this. The worship team is going to come. We're going to sing a song about um, our purpose and our call. Money, madness, and mission. May we stay on mission and serve the purposes of God. The ushers are going to come to receive our connection cards as well as the offerings that you would feel led of the Lord to give to, not because we spoke on it today, but because of the promptings of Jesus in your spirit. May you be blessed.